Folks, if you're liking what you're getting from 30MPC, the number one way you can support us is by subscribing to our newsletter. Every week, you only get two emails. On Monday, you get a content roll-up of everything that dropped last week. And on Fridays, I pick one topic and I personally write a deep dive on things like how to cold call, how to run a discovery call, or even how to hire an AE. So if you're liking what you're getting here, take two seconds, go to the show notes. You'll see a button to subscribe to our newsletter, or you can go to 30mpc.com backslash newsletter and do it there. We'll catch you soon. Cheers. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Farouk. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Sigelski. And today, oh, man, if you ever wanted to find out how to get to power, figure out if you're out power, holy smokes, one of the best we've ever seen. It's Brandon Sedloff, the SVP of sales at Juniper Square. Nick, why should people listen? Well, this was the first interview, I think, ever when we finished the recording. Armand, you went Woo! Really, really loudly, and it hurt my ears a little bit because you were so excited. But seriously, this was an extremely good episode because I've seen a lot of salespeople recently fall into this trap where they talk to someone who's a champion who's like, look, we've got all these problems and your product solves it. And we talk to them for weeks and weeks and months and months. And then we find out, oh, they don't have signing authority and this isn't an initiative at all. And there's this paradigm that a lot of sellers have around, oh, I've got to get to power and I do that after I've talked with a champion. They'll help me multi-thread. And Brandon's got some really, really good stuff around testing signing authority, getting to someone with signing authority early in the process so that you never deal with that icky feeling of like having to fight with your champion to get to power or go around them. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. Today's deal acceleration cheat code is brought to you by Pipedrive, which is a CRM built by sellers for sellers. The best way to drive your pipeline forward is to every single day pull up a list of all of your open opportunities and look at each opportunity by stage and think, what can I do today that will increase my likelihood of winning this deal? That's how you keep your ops moving forward in between meetings that you have on the calendar. Now, we documented five cheat codes that can help you cut your sales cycle in half with Pipedrive. There's a link in the show notes to steal them. This actionable competitive tactic from Clue is the trap question. Steer discovery toward the winning zone. If we're competing with a podcast that has no newsletter or webinar series, we might ask a trap question like, how do you figure out if those podcast listeners are making their way to your mailing list? And when you're in a head-to-head, there's no better way to prepare for your next competitive battle than with our trap questions and battle card templates from our friends at Clue. The link's in the show notes. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. Obsessive checking of your inbox is a total waste of time and brain power. Instead, commit to checking your inbox and responding to email at set times throughout the day. I'm a fan of Boomerang's pause inbox function to keep myself from getting distracted by my inbox. Now, we documented our best templates and tools to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang, and you can get that for free at the link in the show notes. Three, two, one, woo! All right, Brandon, welcome to the show. We start every single interview with your top three actionable takeaways, so let's get your three. 
Thanks, Nick. Number one, check for signing authority. What does this mean? It means are you dealing with somebody at the organization who can either create budget or steal budget? All too often, we get into a process and we realize very late in the stage that the person that we've been working with, although they're lovely and they're really nice to talk to and they're helpful, they actually don't have the ability to make a decision. One way I like to do that is by forcing them to execute an NDA if it's appropriate for your job. The reason that an NDA is really helpful is it helps you determine, do they have the ability to execute a document, a contractually binding document on behalf of the company? Typically, people who are in a position of power, meaning that they can create budget or steal budget for your product or service, are able to execute an NDA. If you don't have that person, it's a good sign that you might need to find somebody else to sell to. Beautiful. What's tip number two? Number two is send an update email to your executive sponsor early on in the process. All too often, salespeople get fairly deep into the sales process and they think that they need to go higher and go around and go above their champion. And that can be very, very problematic. One way to avoid that weirdness when you're far down in the sales process is upfront in the very beginning, once you've had a conversation with the person who's interested in buying your product or service, send an update email to an executive at that company. You don't necessarily need to ask for permission because it's still early in the process. And that update email can say something like, hi, today I spoke with XYZ on your team and she's interested in figuring out how we can provide a better solution for ABC. Just wanted to let you know, I will keep you updated as we move throughout the process. Now you can go back to that email anytime you need that executive support without it being awkward and your champion feel like you're going around them. I love it. Round us out, Brandon. What's tip number three? Tip number three is make a presumptive meeting request. So much of our communication happens via email, yet the way that we communicate over email has not evolved to keep up with modern times. People are extraordinarily busy. If your goal of the email is to get a meeting, which it always is, otherwise, why would you send an email? The very first thing that you should say is, quote, can I carve out 15 minutes to work with your assistant to have a meeting next week, end quote right? It's as easy as that. The executive who's reading it is scanning it on their phone. It's the first thing that they see. They see that you want a meeting. Number two, you're asking if you can reach out to their assistant. Whether they have an assistant or not, it doesn't matter. But you asking that implies that A, you think that they're important and B, you understand that their time is valuable. And nine out of 10 times, they'll write back and say, yes, I've CC'd so-and-so, or I don't have assistant, but how about 30 minutes, two weeks from now? And then you lock in the meeting. Brandon, in the prep, you mentioned this awesome story, well, unfortunate story around how you followed deal and the wrong champion for two years only to realize that they weren't actually a champion that could get anything done. So knowing what you know now, when you're coaching reps, what are some of the things that I should be looking out for early on in the deal cycle that tell me I'm with the wrong person? Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of them is what we just talked about, which is how do you know if you have signing authority? The people that you sell to don't really think about the world in terms of do you have signing authority or do you not? They think about what is within the realm of their responsibility and what are they capable of? So all too often deals go sideways because somebody that you're working with is really engaged. They love your product or service and they feel like it could be valuable for them. But in order to get an enterprise sale or to get a significant you know, product or solution sold, it's not good enough to sell a product that's going to benefit a single person in a silo. You need to make sure that you're demonstrating value to the entire organization. And one way to do that is to make sure that you have the right people at the table. So in the top three openers, we talked about that update email. That's really helpful because if you send an update email and an executive writes back and says, actually, 
thanks so much, but we have no budget or we're not interested in buying solution XYZ in the next 12 months, all of a sudden you know that now you're wasting your time with the person and there's absolutely no ability for them to go create budget or steal budget. So the example that I gave to you guys, which I can replay for your audience, is I spent two years in an enterprise sales cycle with a really terrific, wonderful woman who was, quote unquote, my champion. She did everything that I asked her to do. Every meeting I asked for was set up. I got all the information that I needed to do my discovery and listen. Everything was going perfect. It felt so good. But keep in mind, feeling is really different than reality. And while it felt good because she was responsive and we had a great dialogue, the thing that was missing is that I didn't figure out early enough that she had no ability to create budget or steal budget. And everything we were talking about would just benefit her. And so fast forward two years of like mind numbing work in order to get this deal done. Eventually I got in touch with the CFO. And when I had lunch with him, he said, with all due respect, Brandon, we like your product and service, but there's no way that we're going to buy it if only this woman wants it. So why don't you start over and tell me what you do? Sure enough, within three months, we had a signed contract. And that was because we had a solution that met a problem that they had. And we were able to get to the right person who could actually make a decision versus somebody who was really interested, but didn't know how to get the internal sale done on my behalf. So hard lesson learned, but it's really important to figure out if you're in the room with the right person early on in the process. And if you're not, and you can't get there, then you need to make a judgment call. Do you proceed or do you disqualify? You make such an interesting point around it's really easy to fall into the trap of I'm talking to someone who's excited about what I'm selling and they're talking about problems that we solve and we're connecting on that. You might even get trapped in the problems that they're excited to solve feel like above the line problems because sometimes people who are right at that line, they'll talk about big above the line stuff that they've heard from the C-suite but you're right. If you look at it objectively, they still can't get to the deal done and you are going to have to go hire, talk to other people, et cetera. And it's easy, easy, easy to get stuck in this work a deal for 18 months, two years, et cetera, when you can actually fast track it by getting higher into other people in the organization. And you talked about testing your champion to figure out, are they someone who's actually going to be able to sign this thing? And one of the tips that you gave was the idea of this NDA having them sign an NDA, because if they can't sign the NDA, well, that probably means they don't have signing authority for other things. And if they can, that gives you some inclination there. I'm curious if you could rewind to that deal that you spent two years with one person. I bet there are things that you would have done earlier to save yourself all of that time and hassle and meetings and headache. And I'm curious if you could give me some of the advice that you wish you could give to yourself back then. Yeah. I mean, I think every deal is different, obviously, and an NDA is not an absolute fail-safe approach, but it's one that you can use. I think the thing that I missed early in that deal was understanding kind of what the timeline was for them to be able to make a decision. And the reality was, with the benefit of hindsight, there was no timeline. And if you don't have a timeline, you don't have any forcing function. So in kind of sales speak, we call it a customer journey or a buyer's journey. Please never use that word to any prospect that you have because your prospects don't think that they're on a buyer's journey or a customer journey. That's internal jargon. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard salespeople tell a prospect, let's go on a customer journey. That doesn't mean anything to them. So what does it mean in reality? It means you map out kind of the process, but you put it together in a way that makes sense for them. So the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to set expectations. The expectation that we're going to set in the process is that you're going to tell me about your problems. I'm going to tell you about my solution, and we're going to decide if we think it's a good enough fit period, full stop. You should be totally prepared to ask that question 
early and often in the sales process. And you should set that expectation maybe on the second call about how the process is going to work going forward. So the first thing is giving them permission to exit the process at any time. When you give somebody the ability to say no, they're not interested, there's like a psychological change that happens in their brain and they let their guard down. So giving them permission to say no is one of the things that I would have done earlier on in the process. The other thing is I like to start at the end and work backwards. So do you have a specific date that you want to be using the product or service by? Sometimes we call it an implementation date. That works if you're dealing with procurement teams, but if you're not dealing with people who understand how to buy technology or services, what is the date when you need this thing to work for you? And by doing that, you can work backwards and you can set specific milestones that you as the salesperson know need to be achieved. So an example of a milestone is, I need to make sure that we have a good fit for you and our product and service. So we're gonna do a whole bunch of stuff to make sure that's gonna happen. You're gonna give me information. I'm gonna share some stuff with you. We're gonna go back and forth. Once we do that, we then need to make sure that you have the right things that you need in order to get this done. Do you have the right resources? If it's a technical implementation, do you have the right budget? And so there's a process for that. And you're going to ask them, what is that process? And you're going to ask them up front. And if they don't really know, and they can't give you specifics of who they need to go to, how long that takes, what any hurdles are, then that's a little yellow flag for you that you need to dig in there because there is no predefined process. And with that's a lot of the area where we just got into Neverland. It just, it felt really good. There was no, no constraint of them asking for things from me and me giving things back to them. So I think those are a few things that you can look for in the process. And then also, and we might talk about it later, but the way that you use customer references in that particular deal, I was very happy to give customer references early on because I didn't know any better. But what I've learned since then is that the time to give customer references is not when your prospect asks for them. That's on their schedule. The time to give customer references is when you're doing confirmatory diligence. And so what I always like to tell the reps to say to a prospect is, we're very happy to introduce you to some of our customers in addition to the case studies that you can read online, but we will do so only as part of your confirmatory diligence. So what exists from where we are to you getting into confirmatory diligence, which may, means we've identified that we can solve a problem. We've done all the validation and all the discovery and sales terms. We've got a fit. We've talked about terms. We've talked about pricing. We know how we're going to get the deal done. We have timing. Now is the time for me to connect you with a customer reference. And holding that back a little bit both protects your customers, so it helps you get to scale faster, but it also gives you something to give at the end of the process when traditionally you're just into like contract negotiation and legal and it's messy, you have something to offer them that's productive for them. So those are a few things that I like to coach the reps on based on my experiences. Brandon, on the interviewer's journey, from my perspective, you're doing a great job right now. I want to go double click on this reference thing a little bit more. So I remember there was one deal that I was selling to a company that most people would know, and they were running an RFP process. And they had the ability to throw their weight around due to the size of that logo. And as part of the RFP process, they said, hey, after the first call, we ask every single vendor to submit three customer references, and it's part of our buying process. And I got on that first call, and I couldn't figure out the right way to push back, especially because usually when this happens, it's not from an executive. It's usually a marching order from an executive to a below-the-line buyer who just wants to know that they're checking certain boxes as part of the evaluation. So what is the right way to artfully push back 
when someone is asking for references really early on in the process. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. The first thing that I would tell you is that if you're being issued an RFP that you're responding to and you weren't a part of creating that RFP, you should know that you're probably starting from a position of relative disadvantage. The rule of thumb is that the person who wins the RFP was involved in creating the RFP. So if that's your first interaction with the prospect or you don't have an executive engagement at that point, it doesn't mean you're going to lose the deal, but it just means you're not in the strongest position. So with that in mind, you sometimes have to change your tactic versus if you know that you're going into a deal and you're in pole position. You're absolutely right that an RFP is typically created by procurement and the requests come from consolidated feedback from business users without any real consideration for how it might practically work. In that case, I would probably ask them for something specific around a reference because simply offering a reference is no good. What do you want to talk about? When do you want to talk to them? What are the specific questions that you have? And so I would create kind of space to have a dialogue around that point. And we've done this a lot. And what you find is usually the request for a client reference gets deprioritized relative to other things, but will always come back up when you get close to an actual decision. The other thing that you can do is if you work for a company that has the benefit of having case studies or other things that are available off the shelf, you can always insert those in. You could drop a link. You could refer them to there and ask them, is this the type of client reference you're looking for? And if it's not, and they say, no, I want to talk to somebody on the phone. Great. Who do you want to talk to? Both client type, persona. Do you want to talk to the CFO? Do you want to talk to the implementation team? Do you want to talk to the end users? Who do you want to talk to? What are the specific things you want to know? Do you want to know, do they like us? Are we reputable? Do you want to know how the product integrates with another product? What do you want to know? And then when is your team available? Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to help them get on the phone. Because if you email them directly, they have no idea why you're reaching out. They have no incentive to make time to talk to you because like you, they're very busy. So let me help you get that reference as quickly as possible and make sure that it's the best use of your executive's time. Doesn't always work perfectly. RFPs are tricky, but that's what we like to do or what I like to do in those situations. Brandon, one thing that you mentioned that I really want to call out is there are different types of references. Type of reference number one is I want to know that you're reputable and I want to know that your customers like you. Type number two is I have a specific thing that I'm hoping to de-risk from a specific profile of customer. And my favorite line was to actually paint those two types to customers and be like, typically when someone asks for references this early, it's because you either want to know the reputation thing or you know our space inside and out and you have two things that you're looking for. Which of it is it? And nine times out of 10 that early in the process, it's the first one. They just want to know your customers love you. And if you can say that, hey, like we protect our customers' time, and if you want to do references, we typically do that once. And if you want to burn it on that, great. But usually the people on our website in case studies happen to like us because they did case studies with us. And so you can understand where the reference is coming from and tell them that their future reference ask is the one that really needs to be the one that they hold high because we're only going to do that once. I want to talk about this concept that you mentioned a little bit earlier of getting involved in defining the RFP. And the quote that you said is the person who was involved in building the RFP usually wins the deal. So what is the right way to involve myself in building the requirements so I stack the deck in my favor? Yeah. I mean, it depends on the type of customer that you're selling to and the size of the organization. 
but in general, you want to be interacting with the business users versus procurement, and you want to be engaged in a quote unquote consultative sales process. Now that's, you know, air quotes are kind of in jest because who doesn't want to be a consultative salesperson? But the reality is that, and this is really applicable to kind of enterprise type sales. If you're selling an enterprise solution, you need to understand the business problems of the users of your solution as well or better than they do. Because what an RFP is, is it's a process to quote unquote, create a fair evaluation is a lot of firms need it for compliance and they need it for like data keeping to make sure that they're being fair in their approach. But it's really a consolidation of all the different business user team requests, right? And so the way that you make sure that the business user is putting the request in a way that works for you is you understand the request and you educate them and you work with them to kind of make sure that their definition of their problem, I should say their definition of their symptom, because they really don't know their problem most times, they know the symptom is a problem that your service or solution can solve. And so it's not the easy button. It takes a lot of time. And that's why companies that issue RFPs are typically extraordinarily large and they have the resources and they do it themselves or they have extra budget and they're outsourcing that process to a trusted third party. There's a huge information asymmetry that exists. Like all sellers just need to remember as a salesperson, you understand a lot more about your product or service than your client ever will. And so when you go into any sort of an engagement with them, you just have to remember that there's always going to be this information asymmetry. And your job as a salesperson is to help close that gap. Going back to your point around references, why do people ask for references? Because they don't know how to buy. They don't know the right question to ask. So it's very easy. Your reference comment, you had two reasons to do it. One, to make sure you're reputable. The way that people buy is they're like, oh, it's good enough for Susie or Joe. It's good enough for me. Great. Check that box. But that's not ideal because if they actually knew how to buy, they would know how to run a procurement process. They would know how to run an evaluation. They would understand you know, how the process works, how to respect the salesperson in the process. But like, it doesn't work that way. And that's why you have all this confusion. A lot of our kind of sales methodologies are engineered for the assumption that your buyer knows how to buy. But an RFP, your buyer doesn't know how to buy. If they knew how to buy, they wouldn't issue an RFP. And I can't tell you how many times I, as the manager and reps have said no to an RFP, how many times we've said no to an RFP and guess what that does. Number one, you don't win the deal. Number two, you don't spend any time on it. But number three, the unintended consequence is you build tremendous trust because if you look at an RFP and you say, oh, this is too hard, I'm not going to do it. Okay. Then you're failing. But if you look at it and say, wait, something is off here. I know this space better than anybody else. I know my product better than anybody else. And I can tell you honestly, morally, ethically, there's no product or service or solution that is going to do the vast majority of this stuff. So if we answer this RFP and we answer it honestly, number one, it's going to be incomplete. And number two, I guarantee we're going to lose because somebody else is going to go through and check a lot more boxes than we are. By exiting the process early, we have won more deals either because the person moves on or the company gets smart because they go through a whole process only to realize that, oh, you know, that guy was actually right. Nobody can do this. And they call you back. So you're building trust and you're building credibility. And if you want to be in sales as a career and you don't want to just go to President's Club once, but you want to go every year and you don't want to just go at one company, you want to go at any company that you have the privilege of joining, then you need to have a very solid reputation and you need to have the EQ to know when to hold them and when to fold them. And like an RFP is a perfect test of that.
And that's an area where sales management and reps and company management are not always aligned. It's really easy to think, wow, my product and service is great because I had the benefit of getting sent an RFP, when in reality, you have no shot at winning that. You have to protect your time as a rep, and it can be a tremendous waste of your time to chase down all the RFP answers if your firm doesn't have resources to do it. So just one thing to think about. This used to happen to me a ton, Brandon. I used to sell law firm accounting software, and I would get these RFPs for the legal department of massive public utility companies. And I'd get the little notification inbound like demo request, and I'd be all excited and I'd open my inbox and I would see we are issuing an RFP and I would just like lose all of my juice because they were really, really frustrating. And you gave that really interesting talk track around like morally, ethically, intellectually, like you can't participate in the process and you actually ask to opt out. I'm wondering, so let's say I'm a salesperson and that RFP request hits my inbox. I get the ding inbound. What do I do? Like, what's the first step of what I should do? Do I just write in the email what you said and then hope things go well? Can you walk me through step by step the order of operations I should be following as a salesperson to like optimize my outcome? Yeah, and I should start off by saying, Number one, our primary way of selling at Juniper Square is not necessarily focused on RFPs, right? We thankfully don't get a lot of them. When we do get them, we've typically been a process, part of creating them. So that bodes well. And, and I think that's an important kind of framing because, you know, there are a lot of businesses, you know, businesses that work with governmental agencies and others where the standard, the only way to go is an RFP. And a lot of what I'm saying may not be true for you. So I think, you know, just orient yourself to like what's best for your business. But the very first thing I ask the team to do is to evaluate our ability to actually solve the problem that the company is trying to solve. So you read all the questions and you go through, you create the time, you don't respond, you look at it, you create the time, you set up meetings internally, maybe with your sales leaders, your solutions engineers, maybe your product team, and you get consensus. Do we think that our solution or service can solve the problem that this prospect has? If the answer is yes, that's when you could start engaging and ask clarifying questions. If the answer is no or not really or not without a ton of product work, then I would typically let the person know that we appreciate the opportunity, but we actually don't believe that we're a good fit for these reasons. You outline those reasons and then you're done. But if you're outlining those reasons to procurement, who's the person who sent it to you, and by the way, that email nine out of 10 times is gonna say, please do not interact with anyone else at the company under any circumstances, they don't care, no disrespect to our friends in procurement, but like they don't get paid. Their incentive is not to care why you're declining. It's to evaluate those who respond. And that's why it's so important to going back to my original point around consultative selling, having relationships with the business users. That's where you go back to the business user and you say, hey, I just wanted to let you know, thank you so much. I presume you know part of the reason we were issued the RFP is because of the requirements that you had. We can totally solve those, but just the way the RFP was written, I wanted to let you know that I don't think we can be successful. And candidly, I'm not sure that there's anyone who can. So I want to stay close to it. Can I be a resource for you? And by the way, if you're not getting what you need in six to 12 months, let's revisit it because there might be another opportunity. What happens, interestingly, more often than you would think, at least in my industry, which is you know private markets, fintech, real estate, venture, crypto, PE, all that kind of stuff, is that the business users get so frustrated by the fact that they're not getting solutions for their problems that at the same time, procurement's doing their thing and they're getting shut down. They're looking for another job. And guess what happens when they find another job? They pop back up. And who's the first person they call? 
the person that they like, that they trust, that was honest, can't tell you how many, we can call them boomerang deals or whatever, we've gotten where we've lost one sales process either because we've disqualified ourselves or been disqualified. And we've immediately won a parallel process because the person who has a problem has left the organization because the organization is not able to solve their problem. So the takeaway is always do the right thing. Always, always, always. There's never a shortcut. It will never pay off if you want to have any longevity as a salesperson in your industry. Brandon, you had one last really good riff that I have to pull on from the prep, which is for those of you folks who don't know, Juniper Square has a series of software tools and services that help investors manage everything from their investments to their relationship with the investors who invest in the funds as well. And very, very rarely from what I know about the space, is there someone who has nothing in place? It's almost always there's an existing team or there's an existing platform in place. And you talked about the process of creating or stealing budget. And so let's say that you're outbounding into an account and you've pulled someone out of the water and we're no longer an RFP world. They're not saying, I've decided to buy this thing already. And you know they have an existing team or set of services or service providers that you need to rip out. And my guess is Juniper Square is typically not the cheapest. How do you go about creating or stealing budget in a rip and replace type of environment? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that one thing not to do that a lot of reps do and lead with is they disparage their competition. You should never disparage your competition because you have to remember that eight out of 10 times, the person that you're trying to convince to change is the person who made the decision to go with said solution. So if you immediately put them on defense, threaten them, make them think that they've made a bad decision or disparage the group that they're working with, you're probably gonna end up disqualifying yourself. The second thing that you have to remember, and I'm deliberately answering the question this way because the tactics are fine, tactics are easy. You can find tactics a lot of places, everybody has their own shtick, but you have to understand kind of the approach. How is the person on the other end of the conversation thinking about it? And that informs which of the many tactics you use. So as a salesperson, you've got all these different strategies and tactics you can use. Your job is to figure out which is the right one to use in the right circumstance. So the other thing to keep in mind is that if you're thinking about change, your prospect is not thinking about how much better your product or service can be. They're thinking about all the things that could go wrong with changing, even if there's a problem. And that's why a lot of people are like, oh, it's broken, but it's like, it's not broken enough. I'm going to give them one more chance. I mean, how many times have you heard that? It happens all the time. And that's not because they love the vendor, the, they owe anything to the current you know, partner or provider. It's because they're afraid of change. So one of the things that I like to do very early on is I like to highlight stories of people who have successfully changed with little to no friction. And you can do that by referencing peers. You know, I understand that you're on this product and I wanted to let you know that we recently brought over these two companies in your space from this product. And here's what they told us once they were on board. So it's not about you saying why your product or service is better. It's not about anything else. It's about here's what your peers are saying about their change in solution provider and why it might be relevant to you. Would it make sense to talk, right? Again, if you ask a no question, if you follow Josh Braun on LinkedIn, he talks a lot about this. If you ask a no question, like, would it be crazy, or maybe this was Chris Voss, I don't know. Would it be crazy to, for me to spend 20 minutes learning a little bit more about your business so I can show you how we help you know, your peers in XYZ industry? The answer that they would give is no, it wouldn't be crazy and they're letting their guard down. Now you're creating space to open it up. So I think you know, depending on where you are in the process, 
the things you have to keep in mind is that people fear change and the uncertainty and risk associated with change. So what can you do to help assuage their concerns about the implementation process, all the things with change? And then number two is, why does it matter to them? What are their peers doing? Because everybody has FOMO. Nobody wants to fall behind. Nobody wants to be the last person standing. You don't get fired for taking the safe bet in the same way you don't get incentivized for taking the riskiest bet. So like your job is to figure out where does your product or solution fit and how can you de-risk it from that perspective? And change is hard and just be empathetic and just know if you don't get them on the first time, you'll get them on the next. And if you don't get them on the next, you'll get them at some point in the future and just be persistent. Boom. Change is hard. And now we got to change to the final question because we're running out of time here, Brandon. Final question is this. We've talked about a lot of really great things salespeople should be doing. Now I got to ask you about a shouldn't. And so the last question is, what's one bad habit that you see a lot of salespeople exhibiting that you think they need to break because it hurts them more than it helps? Talking about themselves and talking about their product or solution. It's not about you. When you're engaged in a sales process, it's all about your prospect. So the more that you talk about yourself, the more that you talk about things that you need, the more that you talk about all the things that are important to you, the less time you're giving your prospect to tell you about what their problems are. So number one thing I tell people, and you know, it's a line from the, the movie slash play Hamilton, talk less, listen more. Beautiful. Brandon, thank you for joining us. Everybody stick around for a 60 second recap coming up soon. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Woodpecker. When you're sending a sales email, you generally want to avoid putting punctuation in the subject line. If you've got an exclamation point, it makes it seem like you're shouting at them. Look at this amazing offer. And a question mark just smells salesy. So avoid punctuation. Now, if you want to steal my full sales cadence from my friends at Woodpecker, there's a link in the show notes for you to go get it and try it for free. Today's deal acceleration tip is brought to you by Demandbase. If you want to save a ton of time as a salesperson and be more relevant, I recommend you prioritize your prospecting by those prospects who are showing buyer intent. It'll keep you from making a bunch of noise and reaching out to folks who aren't in market, and instead you'll reach out to folks who are in market. Now, we built a bunch of templates to help you prioritize, accelerate, and win with Demandbase, and there is a link to those wonderful templates in today's show notes. Otter AI's Otter Pilot for Sales gives you the freedom to sell on your discovery calls by taking notes for you. One of the best ways to deepen your discovery is to ask your prospect about the impetus behind their goals. So when a prospect tells me they want to advertise on more sales podcasts, I'll say, well, it's not every day that you wake up and decide you want to sponsor a podcast. What's causing you to even explore this in the first place? Now, we put together the ultimate discovery checklist with our friends at Otter AI, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes. Today's tactic to triple your connect rate is brought to you by RocketReach, who provides data that lets you reach out to the right person at the right account at the right time. Every time you're reaching out to an account, pull down the contacts again. Yes, I know it sucks, but the average tech tenure is two years, which means 50% of the workforce turns over every year. So look up the account, pull anyone who was hired, and scratch anyone who was left. And one way you can pull verified and accurate data is with Rocket Reach. So if you like this, check out their toolkit on eight ways to triple your cold call connects in the show notes. Your top four takeaways from this episode with Brandon Sedloff include number one, use the NDA to test for signing authority early in the process. Number two, send an executive update also early in the process so that when things are going good, you have a thread to call on when things don't go so good. Number three, map out the process in a way that makes sense to them not to you, aka not a buyer's journey. And lastly, number four, 
the person who's involved in the RFP is usually the person who wins the RFP. And that might mean you need to decline an RFP or ask them to jump on a call to get the bigger why behind why they're doing this in the first place. Alrighty, Nick, how can people help us out? Well, I want to get another woo from you, Armand. And I know the number one way to do that is when folks decide, hey, I'm going to sign up for 30 minutes to President's Club's boring newsletter. And so there's a link in the show notes. Armand puts together all of the best tactics, takeaways, and tips from 30 Minutes to President's Club in a little weekly summary. So go check that out. You might even see some special energy drinks from Nick in that newsletter. See you guys next week. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. Obsessive checking of your inbox is a total waste of time and brain power. Instead, commit to checking your inbox and responding to email at set times throughout the day. I'm a fan of Boomerang's pause inbox function to keep myself from getting distracted by my inbox. Now, we documented our best templates and tools to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang, and you can get that for free at the link in the show notes. Today's deal acceleration tip is brought to you by Demandbase. If you want to save a ton of time as a salesperson and be more relevant, I recommend you prioritize your prospecting by those prospects who are showing buyer intent. It'll keep you from making a bunch of noise and reaching out to folks who aren't in market, and instead you'll reach out to folks who are in market. Now, we built a bunch of templates to help you prioritize, accelerate, and win with Demandbase, and there is a link to those wonderful templates in today's show notes.